0: Well, let's turn again to those words from Acts chapter 9. And uh, please do have that open as I uh, unpack that for us. we we'll spent a few moments now just thinking about uh, these words and uh, of the implications uh, for us. I do have Acts 9 uh, open there in front of you. Now, what does a healthy, growing, multiplying church look like when it's about to explode in missionary zeal, and great gospel growth. That's the snapshot we're given here at the end of chapter 9. In verse 31 we read there, don't we, about the peace that the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria knew. That great opponent of the gospel, Saul, he's no longer a persecutor of Jesus and his church, but rather he's now a proclaimer of Jesus and a partner with the church in that task. And so, The church knows peace. It's being built up. It's multiplying as the spirit of the Lord is at work. And at this point in the Acts account, here at the end of chapter nine, we're on the very cusp of a major movement of the gospel as it begins to go to the ends of the earth, just as the Lord Jesus said it would back in chapter one, verse eight. The gospel is about to literally explode into Gentile territory. We'll see that next week in chapter 10 and on into chapter 11. But before we get there, we bump into this little section here at the end of chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. And they record uh, two healings undertaken by Peter, Aeneas, a paralysed man, and then Tabitha, a dead woman, who was brought back to life. And at first glance, as you're reading through, there's a bit of a puzzle as to why these are here in the book at all. It's sandwiched between these two great moments, these two monumental moments in the history of the church, Saul's conversion, and then the Peter and Cornelius story. Those are really significant events, but you have this little thing slotted in the middle. Why does Luke bother to record these two healings? They were, of course, uh, very significant for the people who are healed. It's also true that these things did actually happen. But there's a great number of things that actually happened, but which Luke doesn't record. Why didn't he include all those other things? He had to be selective. So why has, here's the question, why has the Holy Spirit guided Luke to include these two healings at this particular point in the story? That's the question we have lodged in our minds. Whenever we come to any part of the scriptures, not just asking what it says, but Why it's being said? Why is Luke saying these things? Why is he including this section here at this point? What is the meaning for the original readers, but also for us? What's the meaning of it? Well, Luke includes these two healings to show us the power of the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus at work in his church as they're about to move into a major new phase of gospel growth. We see in this passage, the power of Jesus at work in his multiplying church. And Luke is writing to give you and I certainty about that. That's why Luke has written his gospel acts accounts. He's written to give certainty. But two things are particular to note uh, in these verses this morning. First, the multiplying church knows Jesus powerfully at work in its midst. That's the first thing. The multiplying church knows Jesus powerfully at work in its midst. It's clear as we read these two paragraphs that Jesus is powerfully at work in his church, and he's at work doing the sorts of things he did in his earthly ministry. He's defeating the great enemies that humanity faces, disease, death, and of course sin. And there are two remarkable healings recorded for us. They're here, the first takes place in Lydda. Look there, verse 33. As Peter's going about visiting the saints, the Christians in that area, he meets one called Aeneas. This man's been bedridden for eight years because of his paralysis. And Peter speaks to him and he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. It's clear, isn't it, that it is Jesus Christ who heals this man. And it's very similar the healing of the paralysed we read in Luke's first account, his gospel. We see Jesus there in chapter 5 of Luke. In that account, Jesus, once he'd forgiven the paralysed man his sin, he turns to him and says, "I, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Go home. And immediately he rose up, picked up his bed and went home. I think what luke is saying to his readers at this point is that jesus the risen and ascended lord jesus is still very much at work in his church it's a great encouragement isn't it he was ascended but he's still at work through his spirit but that's not the only healing we read about others had heard about it down the road in joppa where a dear christian woman tabith or tabitha or dorcas she had fallen ill and she had died And the Christians who were there, they sent for Peter, verse 38. They said, please come to us without delay. They had heard that Peter was nearby and perhaps heard what had happened with Aeneas. And so they sent for him. And again, Peter, by the power of the risen Lord Jesus, performs a very Jesus-like miracle, doesn't he? It's very much like the raising of Jairus' daughter recorded in Luke chapter 8. Peter enters the upper room, he puts the mourners outside. He kneels down and prays and says, in the original language, Tabitha kumi. Again, that brings to mind all the exact, almost the exact words that Jesus uses to Jairus's daughter, Letha kumi. These extraordinary healings, they would have brought great, great encouragement, wouldn't they, to the multiplying church but also to Luke's readers, those who are first reading of these things. Remember he's writing in order to give them great certainty about the things they've been taught. Certainty that the risen Lord Jesus was powerfully at work in his church, just as he promised before his ascension in chapter one, verse eight. He promised there, he promised his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the result of that giving of the Spirit is an enabling of his people to announce the message of the risen Lord Jesus so that many would hear, that many would respond, and participate in God's saving purposes. Two things to note here about these remarkable uh, works of healing undertaken by the risen Lord Jesus. Two things we see. First, they are powerful healings that lead to repentance That's the thing in both cases, isn't it? Just note that. In both cases, the impact, the result of these remarkable healings is widespread repentance. Look down verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas and they turned to the Lord. Look on to verse 42. This is after the raising of Tabitha. And it became known throughout all Joppa and Many believed in the Lord. That is the real miracle, isn't it? That's the real source of comfort to the multiplying church. That, even more than the remarkable healings, would have encouraged them no end. The risen Lord Jesus was at work, not just healing, but bringing people to repentance, turning to the Lord, believing in the Lord. To know that Jesus was powerfully at work, overturning the power, not only of sickness and death, but also of the enslavement to sin. To know that he was calling people to himself and adding great numbers to his church, that would be massively encouraging, don't you think, to those who first read of these things. That is, after all, the key task that the Lord Jesus given his church in this present age. They were to go out as witnesses to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news about the promised Christ, the one who died for the sins of men, who rose again, who now reigns at the Father's right hand. So encouraging, surely, to know that, that as they went about that task of calling people to repentance, so encouraging to know that the Lord Jesus was with them in that task, equipping them. And that's something that's been clear all the way through the book of Acts. If you read through Again and again, it's God, through his spirit, with his people, equipping them for the work he's called them to. But it's something that we need to hear again and again, isn't it, don't you think? Especially at this juncture in the Gospel. It is about to make, the church is about to make a huge advance into Gentile territory, and... It's one of those sort of hold your breath and step in sort of moments. This is a big, big move into Gentile territory. But on the cusp of that, he is there reassuring his people that he was in their midst. He was with them. He was very much at work. He was then, and he still is today. He is the one who brings people to himself. There's nothing you or I do. We cannot make someone a Christian. It's the Lord's work. Every evidence of new life in a church, that is the Lord at work. Every new profession of faith, that is the Lord at work. So I think we're to be encouraged and emboldened by what we read here. Don't be distracted by the physical healings. The real miracle is those who repent and turn to the Lord. That is a spiritual miracle. And we're to be encouraged But also the second thing to note is that these healings, wonderful as they are, they point to a permanent restoration. These healings of Aeneas and Tabitha, they were remarkable, but they were only temporary, weren't they? They were real healings. They really did happen. But Aeneas would eventually get sick again. Tabitha would face death see they are healings that point us towards a permanent restoration that the resurrection of jesus guarantees these healings are just foretastes of what is to come little glimpses of what will one day be reality for all who trust in the lord and the new creation the little foretaste of what's to come the last time we read about peter engaging in this sort of healing is back in chapter 3 and there we see that the lord jesus by his spirit heals a lame beggar. But Peter then goes on to give the explanation of that extraordinary healing. Let me read something of his explanation there from chapter 3, verse 19. Peter says to all those who are around him, who watch this happen, in response to witnessing the healing, he says this, he says, repent therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see what he's saying? The full and final restoration of all things will only come when Christ returns at the appointed time. Then and only then. Will the restoration of all that was promised in the scriptures be finally and fully realised? Only then, only then will every deaf man hear again. Only then will every lame man walk. Only then will the physical restoration that we long for be complete. And so we must wait. We have to wait for that full restoration. And so we must be clear in what we believe and what we proclaim about the Christian gospel. It is about real restoration, real physical restoration of all things, but it's a future restoration, isn't it? It's not now. It's something that's yet to be when Christ returns. And so these wonderful healings that we read about here in chapter nine, they were real, but they weren't permanent. But they do bring great encouragement, don't they? Because they demonstrate that jesus is powerful to heal to bring real and permanent healing he can do it and they give us a little foretaste of what will be for all eternity when he returns and so it's clear as we read these two paragraphs that jesus is powerfully at work in the midst of his church as they're about to enter this huge new phase of gospel progress we're given certainty that jesus is at work in his church defeating his enemies The great enemies that we face, death and sin. And he's still doing it today. His church is multiplying all around the world. He is still at work doing what he promised he would do. The gospel is growing, even if it seems to be uh, treading water here in the West. I was just chatting with a friend of mine who is a good friend. He's uh, working in Zambia at the minute. Uh, and he said that there are more Christians in China today than there are people living in the UK. Isn't that encouraging? God is in the midst of his church. He is working powerfully. People all over the world are today hearing the gospel and are repenting and looking forward to that future restoration in the new creation. So that's the first Major truth we've got to grasp from this passage this morning. Jesus is at work in his church. He is at work and he's at work powerfully. But the second key thing we've got to see in this passage is that, yes, we know Jesus is powerfully at work in his church. But secondly, the multiplying church then works purposefully for Jesus. And the church works purposefully because it knows Jesus is at work powerfully in us. To put it another way, the fact that Jesus is at work means that Jesus' people are also at work. Because he's working, we also work. And we see that particularly with the second uh, event in our passage this morning. It's the account of Tabitha's resurrection. And it receives a lot more detail, doesn't it, than the account of Aeneas. A lot more space, a lot more detail is given. Why is that? Well, notice the details that Luke includes for us. We find out a lot more about this woman and about the impact she had on those around her. Look at uh, the end of verse 36. She was full, we're told, of good works and acts of charity. Look on to verse 39. Peter has arrived, and we read that all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that dogs had made, while she was still with them. See, twice Luke emphasises the good works, the the care, the compassion that this woman had for those in need around her. This was clearly a woman who had been grasped by the gospel, gripped by it. His whole life had been transformed by the gospel, and she had been put to work for the service of the Lord and others. She grasps the, the full implications of the gospel, hadn't she? It wasn't just something to think about and intellectualise. It was something that was lived out. It spilled out into her life and her works. Think back to John the Baptist's words recorded by Luke in chapter three of his gospel, where John, speaking to the crowds, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The crowds, they, they press him for details. What do you mean? And he answered them whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise you see the evidence of jesus at work in his people is not just that they turn from sin and repent it's also that the whole lies are then turned around so that they work for him and for the church spirit filled christians not only speak about jesus must do that but not only they also like tabitha they serve those around them they work for one another and in so doing they strengthen the church they build it up and i'm sure you felt that in these strange weeks of lockdown the church pulling together and serving one another that is a real sign of the spirit at work in his people It's just as we see in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. And we read a little passage there at the end, which provides us with a little portrait of the restored community, the early church, who had received the Spirit and were not only devoting themselves to God's Word, but they also expressed real unity, real devotion to each other through sharing food, possessions, and meeting real needs. These are the marks of a multiplying church, aren't they? Yes, of course, great devotion, commitment to the word of God, absolutely. Commitment to the proclamation of the gospel, to the reaching out to the lost with the word, to building up the church with the word, but also real love, acts of service to one another. You can't have one and not have the other. They come together in a real gospel growing church you'll have both these things caring for the widows just as Tabitha had done meeting real needs loving one another in practical ways and that's an encouragement to all of us isn't it we shouldn't somehow relegate practical care for one another in the life of the church it's so key it really does build the church we don't just preach the word and and sort of sit back No, we work at living out the implications of our life as a church. All we need to do is just open our eyes and see the needs of folk around us. Look out for those who need a helping hand. We don't need to wait for somebody to tap our shoulder and point us in the right direction. If we see a need, we do it. We share food. We provide somebody with company. We give them a call. We offer babysitting. We walk with someone through their grief. We... Join with them in their rejoicings. And it's an encouragement, I think, because, well, I know, Gilna Hope Baptist Church, I know these things are present in your midst, so be encouraged. They do matter. These acts of service, even the unseen ones, especially the unseen ones, they are so key, so fundamental to the growth of God's church. Listen to the way uh, one writer, David Gooding, put it. Uh, He just echoes these observations. And listen to what he says. He says, picture Tabitha's situation. She had been busy at her social relief when death intervened and brought all her work to an end. But soon she opened her eyes and there stood none other than the Apostle Peter himself who raised her up, And took her to the next room. And there were the people for whom she had worked so hard before she died, and they were greeting her with unbounded joy and gratitude. And there too was the work that she had done, the garments she had made, such gratitude, such honour, such recognition of her labour. If ever a woman caught sight of the lasting effect and value of her work, that woman was Tabitha when she was raised from the dead. And it surely gave her an added impetus to go on working with all her might for the rest of her life. It's wonderful, isn't it, to see the fruits of her work in her life. There's a line in one of my all-time favourite films, Gladiators. It's a bit cheesy at points, I admit, but uh, one of the characters, Maximus, he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And that is absolutely true for the Christian, isn't it? The fact of Christ's resurrection means that you and I have the certain prospect of our own resurrection and his coming, and the assurance that all our labours in this life have not been in vain. What does the Apostle Paul say in uh, 1 Corinthians 15? He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. What we do in this life, it does matter. It does have eternal consequences. And that is an encouragement for what we do now, what we do for one another. And now it really does matter for all eternity. No small act of kindness is wasted. Not one chenic that Tabitha made was wasted. And so as well as being an encouragement, I'm sure it's also a challenge, isn't it? It challenges us to be Christians who do genuinely seek to work for the church, to be those who look for the interests of others, to look to their needs, to serve them. Again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians reminds us that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we must ask ourselves, are we marked? Am I marked by good works for Christ and his church? Not To earn salvation, we can't earn that as a gift. But do we work because of our salvation in gratitude for all that Christ has done to serve and build his church? Are we genuinely looking to the interests of others and serving them? Or are we so wrapped up in our small little worlds, our own comforts, our own luxuries, that we can't see beyond our own concerns? It's a challenge, isn't it? To see beyond ourselves. And to see the immense great good we can do for each other, for the growth of the church. It's a challenge and an encouragement. You see, the Lord sees each act of kindness. And we know because of Christ's resurrection that even the smallest act of kindness and service will last beyond this life and into the new creation forever. Forever. And that really ought to encourage you this morning. The Lord sees. He knows, even if nobody else does. He sees. So, what does a multiplying church look like? What does a growing church look like? The church here in Acts is on that cusp of great growth. But what did it look like? What was that church like? Well, We've seen in this passage that it's a church that knows that Christ is at work in its midst. He is amongst his people. And because it knows that, it's a church that's also at work. So Gilmaherc Baptist Church, know that the Lord is at work in your midst as you proclaim the gospel. He promises to be with you. And he is at work powerfully, and he will be turning people to himself through his work. And because he's at work We can also be at work, you can be at work, knowing that he's there beside you. And so as we go about our task, witnessing to the truth, we also evidence the fruits of our repentance, real love and care for each other. And those are the marks of a church that is growing, that is witnessing to the truth. It knows Christ is at work, and so it too is at work in witnessing and serving and loving. So let's pray that uh, these marks would be the marks of Gilnehurke Baptist Church. Let's pray, shall we, as we close. Father God, we do thank you so much for uh, your words, for these great encouragements uh, of the reality of the risen Lord Jesus at work in his church through his spirit. And so would you encourage us Uh, with these words encourage us to know that you promise to be with us as we go about your work and Lord help us help us not only to know that to be encouraged by that but also to work to be willing to serve because we know there are far greater realities than we can see there is an eternity to come so help us help us to work together for the sake of the gospel and so bring you great glory. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.